This podcast is a member of WGPRN, WildGamesProductions.com. I'm Chuck Norris, and I approve this game. Hello everyone, welcome to the Roll for Initiative podcast, volume 3, issue 120. I am not DM Vince, and I am not alongside DM Nick. You see, Vince's car unfortunately failed at saving throw versus death, and Nick is out doing family stuff, so that leaves me here by myself, but not really, because I'm also joined by two very special guests. First, one is a voice you actually hear on the podcast quite frequently for him not being a host, DM Kojo. How you doing? Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's good to have you. And then we also have another guest as well that's been on the podcast, Brian Devan Magazine. How's it going, Brian? I can't complain. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you guys. And yep, we got a good show lined up where we're actually going to talk about a adventure for first edition AD&D written within the past year, believe it or not, by Wizards of the Coast. But before we get into that, uh, DM Kojo, so how's your weekend gaming been? Oh, actually, we just uh, had my game last night that we play every other week. Um, I'm it's a two-e game, but we're running them through the uh, Sinister Secret Assault Marsh. Nice. And uh, it was the second session in the haunted house, and uh, yeah, good time was had by all. They uh, uh, had a save or die opportunity by my my party's ranger. He decided to attack a moldy cloak with his sword. I don't <laughs> quite know what's going on with that, but the yellow mold got him. <laughs> Lucky for him, the party had an elixir of health uh, in reserve to bring him back from death. But, uh, um, yeah, it was a little dicey there for a while. But uh, they've finished exploring the haunted house and are now getting ready to move on to actually uh, with the smugglers. So it was a good session. Sweet. And hopefully they also learned a very important life lesson when in regards to mold. Yeah. Yeah, leave it lie, that's for sure. So that was good. And then um, I think uh, we're also going to, in our off uh, off days, going to maybe take up a Dungeon Crawl Classics game, which oh. I've, I've never played before, so I'm excited to try that out. Uh, I, I see uh, D, DM Jim's uh, roped you into it as well. Indeed, the uh, Spellburn podcast uh, has been a great resource, and uh, they their evangelizing of it uh, made me take interest. So it looks like a good game. Yeah, if if I didn't have commitments every Saturday night when they game at the uh, local game store here in Cincinnati, I'd be joining the group. But mm-hmm. unfortunately, it just doesn't work out schedule-wise. But I'm sure at some point I'm going to check out the game with my home group. So And uh, so, Brian, what's new with uh, And Magazine? Oh, we're uh, we're wrapping up issue six. We're going to be publishing. If all goes well, in about a probably about a week and a half or two weeks, uh, we're in final uh, layout. Got all of our material in place. Just doing last minute cleanup. Uh, and there's always something. It doesn't matter how many times we look at anything. Someone goes through it one more time, and we find silly stuff that we've missed the first time. So uh, things are going good there. Uh, 
we just added a new editor, Ian. He joined us uh, in the last week. He's a, a frequent poster on both OSR Gaming and uh, Dragon's Foot. Goes by Ulan Dor. A lot of people who uh, look through the uh, workshop will find his stuff because he produces an amazing amount of stuff. And he's a good editor. He's actually a professional editor, so that's a, a nice addition to our team. And uh, we're we're looking to add some more positions. Uh, one of the things we're looking to do is uh, we need a webmaster. Our current site was put together early on, and it functioned, but we need something new. We've outgrown it, so we're looking for someone to put together a website for us, and either the same person or another person to do minor maintenance as we go, posting weekly updates and things of that nature. We're also looking for a, a media director. Uh, there's just an amazing amount of stuff out there on the Internet, places to go and see, you know, places to advertise, people that have never heard of us. You know, we need someone to do a mixture of web searches and yeah, publicity. And we're always looking for more editors. We find that uh, we literally can't have too many good editors. One of the things we're looking at doing is spinning off I say spinning off, a uh, another team to work on publications outside of the magazine. In 15 months, we published five issues of Ad Magazine and four supplements. Uh, I was going to add up the number of pages we've done, and I forgot to do that, but it's so somewhere probably on the order of 500 pages of D&D material. And the new issue coming out, we're up to 90, I think it's going to be 96 pages just an amazing amount of stuff, and we can't effectively do the supplements along with the magazine, so we're looking to have another team to work side-by-side side to uh, publish that material. Awesome. It just sounds like you guys are just growing exponentially, it seems. Uh, hopefully it's not exponentially. I, I don't want us to grow so fast that we can't control what we're doing. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we're, we're definitely, we've got a good sustained growth. We've got Good material. And again, we're always looking for people to submit articles, you know, monsters, spells. Uh, every theme or every issue is themed. So if someone's got an article that fits that theme, send it in. And if you got an article that doesn't fit the theme, send it in anyways, because we do, uh, our goal is a minimum of 60% of material in an issue fits the theme, which gives us as much as 40% that doesn't. So we've got room for pretty much everything. Well, and you guys do some real quality stuff. I, I should mention that uh, last night in my game, I actually introduced some of the uh, miscellaneous spells from your reference into my campaign through uh, a randomly placed scroll. And uh, the players were so excited to hear spells they'd never heard of before that uh, they can't wait to start digging into those. That is cool. Again, one of the things we look at, again, I've been gaming since 80, 1983, it makes uh, 30 years. That's scary. Um, and the problem is after you play a while, especially if you play with other people who DM, is everybody knows everything. And it's just so hard to make things fresh and new and exciting. You know, you think back to when you first started. I mean, I remember I didn't know anything. And it didn't matter what we ran into. It was cool. It was scary. And after you've been playing for even a year or two, that gets harder and harder to do. So... You know, we're pulling in from across the internet, producing new stuff, so DMs out there can keep their games fresh and, and new and exciting. Right. It's 
you still have that old school feel, the old school flavor, but it's still new and it helps capture that wonderment everyone had the first time they picked up AD&D and the first time they went through a dungeon and saw the trolls, the orcs, the kobolds, all of that. So it's a great way to just actually take you back in time. Whereas if you run a lot of the published adventures, yeah, it's great for a nostalgia kick, but it's you don't have that same wonder that the same newness the freshness that you did the mm-hmm. first time around and when i think old school i mean a lot of people look at the material but the material isn't it it's the mindset right it's uh and i'm not sure who i'm quoting on this it's uh now what trick do you want to play but what do you want to do and you know the dm just figures out okay what's the chances of it happening and th- there's no there's no limits Someone wants to climb a wall in full plate armor, well, go for it. The percentage chance isn't going to be all that high, but hey, maybe you get lucky. Right. Yeah, it, it, there, it's not as much – with a lot of games today, there seems to be a heavy influence on mathematics and everything like a being balanced or ha- having a certain expectations of character stats and abilities. Whereas in old school gaming, yes, stats mattered. But it was more about the player playing the character that affected the story than the raw numbers and character sheet information. It was the player that drove the story, not the mechanics of the game. Yeah, it's totally true. More like chess than Monopoly. Right. Well, your skill in what you're doing makes more of a difference. Although, again, the, the dice give it and the dice... Dice taketh away. Yes, the the dice gods can be very, very fickle at times, or they, or they can be very forgiving. I've had some just amazing things happen where I'm like, okay, your dice are way too hot, and I'm going to have to let these ridiculous things happen in your favor just because it's just it's just oh, too yeah. cool not to let it happen. Yeah, well, I, I guess that's another thing with uh, quote unquote old school gaming is the rule of cool. If it's cool enough, it's like what the heck, let it happen. Right. It's like, if does this sound fun? Is everyone at the table going to ha- enjoy the game? If this happens, let it happen. Have fun with it. Because that's the point of these games is to have fun. It's not to number crunch and try to make the most uber-powered character. It's about to sit around with your friends and have fun telling a story. Yeah, I think uh, we have the most fun at our table when we are kind of off the beaten path as far as the rules go. We're just winging it and Somebody comes up with something crazy, and I say, sure, roll some dice, and let's do it. And uh, more often than not, that's that's when we're having the biggest fun, laughing our heads off. Right. And, and that's something I think if you can bring into any system. It's That aspect is system agnostic, and players just, and DMs just need to embrace it, no matter what edition they play. And I think they'll have a far more enjoyable experience. Agreed. And as for me, I actually, uh, uh, this past Friday, had the privilege of uh, gaming with uh, Jim Wampler and Tim Kask in person, finally, even though we've cohabitated the same city for years. Awesome. Yeah, we got... Yeah, we um, met up at our uh, friendly local game store and played uh, Kenzer Company's uh, The Great Space Race. It's basically uh, Circus Maximus with spaceships, space amoebas, and landmines, or space mines. 
Uh, you and the other players play the six lowliest backwater inbred races of aliens in the known universe. And you're having a race. The winner of this race not only wins the race, they also ensure their uh, entire planet doesn't get obliterated because the five losers of the race get exterminated. And it was lots of fun. Um, there was there was some issues with the rules out of the box, as in it was missing some of the parts, so you had to go online and print them. It didn't actually have all the markers. And there was some major errata that if you just read the book, the rule book, you would be like, this doesn't make sense. So if you end up with a copy of the game, make sure you go and get download the errata online. Yeah, it was totally great meeting uh, Tim and Jim for the first time. So... And, and gaming with them. So it was good times, and hopefully we'll be able to do it again in the uh, near future. And then while Vince may be having car issues, he did get some good news this week, however. His uh, retro clone, uh, Mazes and Perils, was actually nominated for an Any Award. It was nominated for the Any for a Best Free uh, Game Supplement. So coming this week... The uh, voting will be available for the Any Awards. So we all encourage you to vote and vote often, as DM Jason would do. Because we want to get a Any Award here in Wild Game Productions, and this is our first opportunity, so I say we take advantage of it. So we need everyone to unite and start voting for the Any for uh, Mazes and Barrels. Cool. And, yes, very That's cool. That's awesome. Yeah, I know uh, what, what's great about this is Normally, you have you submit your own stuff to be considered for an any award. In this case, Vince didn't submit it. We're not actually sure who submitted Mazes and Perils to be considered for an any award. So the fact that someone else felt it was worthy of being nominated and it actually got selected into the final five is just absolutely mind-blowing and just totally cool. Oh, that's high praise for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. I mean, Vince put a lot of hard work into that product and just organizing everything and with the layout and despite some little snafus at the beginning, it turned out into something really good. So, and so fingers crossed, hopefully we'll be able to get the uh, any award come Gen Con. Oh, that'd be nice. Yes. And now we will go into uh, table manners, and as we talk about the module, the well, the adventure from Dungeon Magazine 215, The Last Slave Lord. Typical of all the evil creatures in the world, I like to find one with table manners. What are you kidding me? I spent years cultivating the worst table manners on the planet. And now we are in Table Manners, and we are actually going to talk about a module that builds upon the A-series. This is actually, like, you could consider like an A5 if you want, but it's not really quite a full adventure out of Dungeon Magazine 215. Yes, I know what some of you old school people are thinking. There is no Dungeon Magazine 215. Well... When DDO happened, they still actually kept making Dunge Dungeon Magazine. It was just online only. So this is actually online only, so you're not going to find a print copy on yourself. But that said, they're actually putting first edition product in it, so it's actually worth us taking a look at. This module 
picks up where the Slave Lord series left off. The players went in, they vanquished the slavers, and they think all is well. But then they start hearing rumors that one of the slave lords is still alive. And now they must go hunt them down to make sure the uh, threat of the slavers is gone once and for all. So let's just give some uh, initial impressions on it. So what did you guys think of this module? Well, I uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, first of all, I'm excited that first edition uh, work is making its way back out there. I think that Wizards of the Coast has finally seen that there is a market for people that still want to buy first edition stuff. And you, you see that with the reprints and the A-series reprint containing a new A0 module, which is also quite good if you haven't checked that out. You definitely should. Um, but it's exciting because hopefully there are more first edition things coming out in the future because, uh, you know, they're seeing that this community is growing and, and definitely a, a untapped market for them. So um, that's refreshing. Yeah, it, it came across as extremely refreshing. And what I did the first time is I just, you know, breezed through it, just trying to get initial impressions. And I overall, it's put together well. It's well written. They've got a lot of, I don't want to get into details right now because we're going to get into that a little bit later, but they've got good information and ideas on how to integrate this into a campaign. Uh, how did you go alternate tracks? Okay, so you, you don't want to do A, so you can do B, or if you're building off of A4, what happens if different characters, major characters, major NPCs survived, you know, how you can change it? And I, I thought the organization for sliding into this was extremely well thought out. Yeah, I agree. It There's a lot that you can take this uh, adventure in many different directions, depending on w if you ran through the A-series, what happened in your own campaign. Did a certain person die? Okay, then you can do this. If they escaped, you can do this. I mean, it it helps build upon the existing story, and, I, and that is great. And it doesn't have a lot of detail, like minute detail that doesn't really add to it. It lets you flesh th those parts out on your own to make it your own adventure. So that way, it's every no two DMs will run it exactly the same because it has enough flexibility in it. It doesn't it doesn't have that rigid feel that some of the newer modules may have. It it actually does a very good job, I think, of capturing that old school feel, flavor, and even layout when compared to some of the older modules. Yeah, I like the layout quite a bit too. I agree with you. I, I like you know I personally like box text. I know not everybody does. Um, but I quite often write out my own box text for my adventures just so I've got something to go do off of. Um, so I like that. And, uh, you know, the monster blocks, you know, uh, in the old format, uh, you know, so yeah, it definitely has a, the, the feel of a, of a old one E module. Right. Yeah. I like the box text in a module. I don't run a lot of modules and when I do, I don't necessarily use the box text. But it gives me ideas, and the one thing we always got to keep in mind when we're doing like a, a commercial dungeon or you know something that's being published is not everybody's got the same skills, and some people just can't pull stuff out of the air and throw it out there. So when we give them that box text, it gives people 
who don't have that skill, the ability to work. And if you don't need it, just ignore it. It's right. not a big deal. Right. And it also just gives you the DM that extra little bit of information as to what the players are seeing. So that way they can put it into their own words and they know mm-hmm. these are the points that need to be hit on to keep the adventure flowing. So, yeah, because I really don't use box text myself, but I will take the information in the box text and make sure the players get that information one way or another. Yeah, they're kind. Of, yeah, for me, they're kind of like the little cliff notes of make sure the players walk away with this information in this section. Yeah. And re- the adventure itself is actually, I would really say, there's two parts to it. The pl- when the the players at the beginning. Hello and child in the background. <laughs> <laughs> That's my two-year-old. Sorry awesome. about that. Oh, no worries. No worries. And if That's you, the next gaming generation. Exactly. Right. You're, you're, you're continuing on the, uh, the gaming population, so you're doing your job well. Yeah, my kids are seven, five, and two, so yeah. we're working up to that. Oh, yeah. It won't be too long before you'll have yourself a whole little built-in gaming group. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I have. My boys are 15 and 17, although I'm uh, our group is going to get fragmented because my oldest goes to college in uh, a little less than a month. Oh, yeah. Un- unfortunately, I haven't quite uh, taught my cats how to roll dice yet. So <laughs> uh, I think we're still a little ways off from me having the built-in home game group. Well, if you put a belt inside the... Like the D20, say, they'll, they'll roll them all over the place. Yeah. Well, they won't stop rolling them is the problem. <laughs> that would be a problem. Yeah. Uh, but uh, this adventure, I mean, there's really two main parts. There's the players receiving the tip from one of the uh, NPCs they actually met in the Slave, Roid, uh, Slave Lord series, uh, the spy uh, that was dressed as a beggar, uh, they meet this uh, NPC again, and he tips them off that one of the slave lords may have escaped to this monastery. Uh, so at that point, the players then travel to the monastery to, to investigate to see if these rumors are actually true. And the first, so the first part of the adventure is just getting there because this monastery isn't in the... Uh, nicest of areas you could say it's actually uh rather treacherous treacherous uh the waters are shallow for large ships and it's a nice stony beach and then once they get there there's all kinds of monsters pirates and to deal with so the journey in this case is actually part of the adventure well i like the setting you know the way the imagery of this monastery up on a cliff face and you know it's really described well in the adventure and uh you really kind of got my creative juices flowing about how to make it kind of creepy and eerie right yeah because it's this abandoned monastery so it's it that was actually the uh cult of the uh brotherhood was told was basically enlisted to keep this monastery for the slavers the monastery of the toiling lady that was built uh, three centuries ago. So, so it's going to be uh, overrun. There's going to be quite a bit of uh, just natural uh, issues to deal with that they wouldn't 
necessarily have to deal with if there was a if it was actually a upkept monastery. Now the uh, picture on page thirty one, the first page of the module, it gives you really great imagery because you've got the cliff, you've got the what looks like old buildings. Right. Up on the side of the cliff, a couple of wyverns or some other type of flying creature in the foreground. It's, uh, again, as a DM, you know, you need to go into these things inspired. And when I look at that, I get ideas without seeing any details. Right. I, I, I'm just envisioning the players, they're on their ship, and they come and just describing this monastery on this cliff side. De- uh, falling apart, rotting. And them approaching it, you got storm in the background. You see wyverns flying overhead, and it would just give this like, um, this is a really eerie place. And even if this slaver issue isn't real, there's something here because this, this type of place just doesn't exist for no reason. So yeah, it's it has a great setting to it, um, and then. Once you get there, you still have to scale this cliff. And there's all types of random encounters of things you could be coming across. Because while the monastery is abandoned, quote-unquote, the island isn't. There's all kinds of things. There's You have your two different sets of random encounter tables. One for daytime, one for nighttime. And they're all actually kind of nasty <laughs> when you're uh just trekking up and all of a sudden two wyverns come down hunting for food and they and they determine you're the food mm-hmm. or <laughs> yeah or you have your pirates you have assassins roaming around wasp more of that uh just the natural environment taking back over and be like we need to get rid of these people so they'll the wasp will bother you. There's crabmen there that are foraging. There's dakins. I mean, but then at night is when it gets really nasty. That's when the grimlocks and gibberlings and trolls and umberhulks come out. And then it is a monastery, so of course there's also going to be ghosts. So, so there's yeah, you know, one of the real strengths I think of this adventure is that. It has, for one, a lot of monsters that you haven't seen in previously published adventures, at least in the the mainstream ones. Um, You know, things I had to even go up and and look up in some cases in like the Fiend Folio, you know, that monsters I'd never used or in some cases never heard of. Um, But I like that it's not just kind of randomly thrown in there. Like there is a story that the author gives you for why are the Grimlocks there and why are the slavers there and why are all the undead that we're probably going to talk about later there? And so they've all got their own elements of, and they're kind of, it's kind of this weird ecology going on where they're all at odds, but they're all kind of carved out their niche in this monastery. So it's very interesting. Yeah, it's uh yeah, it, it, everything actually makes sense. Unlike uh, some modules where, you could tell the author just thought this monster was cool and let's throw it in. Everything has a reason. It actually helps build the story. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I like the fact that they pulled out, as uh, Kojo said, they pulled out some monsters. I, I see Sue Monster. Okay, I, I, what the heck is a Sue Monster? I know I've seen that before and I had to look it up in the monster manual and I've never used one before. 
Right. Uh, yeah, there, this will be a, – there's a lot in this module that your old-time player, they may not – They'll re, the, something will trigger that, oh, I remember that, but they won't remember it so well that they'll start metagaming with it. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, like early on, then, uh, you know, you run into, I think it's pronounced the Seafull, uh, which is from the Fiend Folio is the, the colony of insects that come together and form like the sentient mass. And I'd never heard of that monster. I mean, I'm sure I read it once upon a time, but it's not something you're just going to come across in everyday adventures. So uh, you're right. The metagaming kind of, you know, gets circumvented when you have creatures like that that aren't as well known. Yeah, the yeah, so in the uh island itself is very treacherous, but the monastery itself has been sealed up enough by the Scarlet Brotherhood cult that none of these wandering monsters are able to actually get in. None of these outside forces actually make it into the monastery. So the players can kind of get a break from the uh pro- issues of all this the wa- wasps, crabmen, bats, ghosts, and whatnot on the outside, provided they remember to close the door to the monastery <laughs> once they get in. I like that little touch. If you forget to close the door, you now have to start taking into account these creatures from the outside will actually come in. And then once the pl- players get in, the, the they have a nice actual map on... Oh, I went past it. It is on page... 35. 35, yes, as my mouse refuses to cooperate. On page 35, it's got a nice little layout, so you can see where the path leading up to the monastery is from the the rocky beach, and then you can just see how massive this complex is. I mean, there's lots to explore, and it actually does kind of have that good old dungeon crawl feel to it. as, As you get to trek through the various rooms, and there's a little bit of everything in it. As opposed to just one type of, oh, it's nothing but filled with undead, or, oh, it's nothing but evil clerics. No, it's a little of everything. One thing I liked about the map is it's uh, multi-threaded. You can go in in different paths through this. There's a lot of doors. So, the you know, the players can make their own way through it. And it also means other stuff can come up behind them. So the players have got to keep their eyes open. Uh, on screen, the map is... Is really cool. The other thing I don't like about it is these more modern maps with all the color are fairly expensive to print on an inkjet printer. Right. Oh, yeah. You know, there are a lot of inks, so I prefer the old... Uh, you know, as much as I like the blue maps, I like playing all black and white because black is cheap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I usually end up taking graph paper and just plotting out the maps on graph paper and just using that with my players, so... It saves saves me a lot of time. Well, mm-hmm. not kind of, because so that because I'm I I have a tablet, so I'll just pull up the map of my tablet, and then as the players start advancing through, it'll be like, okay, now you see this, and I can just draw out the exact parts they see. So, but yeah, oh, yeah. we do our group does the mapping. So what I have, they don't necessarily see. They get a description from me about what they're going to see. But I'm just saying as a reference model, I don't normally play with a computer at the table. Ah. So I'm more likely to print a map, so I have it as a reference inside my DM screens. And as much as I like these, or again, you print a few of these, and you look at the, regi- or the monitor for your ink, and it's like, ooh. Yeah. 
This guy, that was that was a twelve dollar map. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That that cost could add up pretty quick, especially like if you were to print this module out. It had it's the charts are in color, the headings are in color, has a nice border to it. So yeah, just printing this out would be a little on the costly side, but that's why I I have an ASUS Transformer tablet and for. PDF only products. I live and die by that thing. It's just so handy. Hmm. I was thinking about getting one of them. Yeah. I highly recommend it and get the dock. The dock is great. Doubles your battery life. You actually get a real keyboard and touchpad. Oh. Yeah. The dock runs like 150 and it also gives you an SD card slot and USB port. So you can actually hook a mouse up to it. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was going to say pads are nice, but. Uh, I'm a touch typist, and it doesn't work too well with, like, an iPad or something. Right, yeah. The Asus Transformer actually turns into a netbook quite nicely with once you get the dock. Oh. Yeah, keep that in mind as I start looking at them. Yep. Yeah, so as they – so the players, they travel up this path, and then, and then they get to the yard, the rubble strewn everywhere, and just – because it's outside this uh, monastery that is falling apart. And and then you just go through and they'll start seeing tracks of humanoid creatures, which is all the uh, assassins and pirates and everything that's roaming this land. And then there's also a shrine around the entrance that they dug into a mountain because this monastery was actually built on a mine. They And the slavers would actually use that and send people down there. Um, and it also talks about, if in case your players decide, hey, let's explore the mine, just to keep throwing lots and lots of neophyte ugyucks and uh, grimlocks at them. So that way they realize we probably shouldn't go down the mine because it really doesn't build upon the mine at all in the adventure. Although you certainly could, if you wanted to, ahead of time, flesh something out for that. It certainly could take them off in a different direction. The, uh, you know, I can see exploring the Grimlock Mines as a, as a fun kind of thing, side adventure. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could definitely see that, too, because then you could throw all kinds of what, what was going on before the Scarlet Brotherhood took over. What was when the monastery was originally built into the mind and... There's all types of other stories you could tell as well. Right. I know my players would be like, why don't you give us this opportunity to get down in the mine and then you're going to block us off with, you know, unreasonable amounts of (laughs) stuff in our way. So um, I'd probably, if I was going to run this, have at least like the beginning fleshed out of the Grimlock Mines if they decide they want to go down there so that we could kind of carry that through. Um, and maybe have it somehow connect back up to some other part here on the monastery or the other side or something. So it kind of a, a detour, but not a complete sidetrack. Right. You or you may even, if you just want to discourage them, start describing some mind flares. Since <laughs> the uh, Grimlocks were uh, helped by uh, mind flares, magic. So. <laughs> If right. they start seeing a few mind flayers down there working with the Grimlocks, that might cause them to turn back. Yeah, that might. Yeah, I would do things that would give the players the idea that they need, if they're going to get down in the mine, they need to be prepared for that job alone and get them to stay on task with dealing with the slave lords. And then 
at a later date come on back and uh, do the exploration. Don't tell them no. Just say, well, yeah. we'll do this a little bit later. Right. You just, could remind them of their mission, yeah, what they were hired to do in the first place. Right. Because the last thing any party wants to do is veer off task and find themselves in a horrible situation, unable to complete their real job because they decide to go exploring where they shouldn't have been. Yeah, that never happens. No, never at all. <laughs> it's Instead, it's almost guaranteed it will happen if, if they see any opportunity. Sometimes they'll make their own opportunities just to go off the rails. Yep. Right. Oh no. Well, I could totally see, like I said, expanding that and yeah. uh, having that at the ready just in case. Yeah. Yep. So once they get past the uh, tempting cave, infe- infested with uh, grimlocks and possibly mind flayers, if you choose, they come upon the entrance, and this is a door that is locked and barred for good reason to keep all the stuff outside, outside, and that they have to break it down to get in. And then inside, once they're inside, it, there's pirates and assassins in the area guarding it. And so, and then at this point, they're in the monastery and they get to explore. Because as we pointed out earlier, there's lots of different paths. There's not one set. You go through this door, you go through this door, you go through this door. There's actually quite a few different ways you can get in. Yeah, I mentioned that earlier is, is it gives the players a lot of choice. I... I've done the adventures where you've got like a single way in, like, uh, well, G3, yeah, uh, the Fire Giants. But I like to give them multiple ways, and the smart players are going to be looking for a, an entrance other than the front door. Right. Especially with this, I'm counting one, two, three, four. There's four different doors, or five. There's actually five different ways to get in this monastery via doors, and that's not counting all the windows. Yep. So they could start in, in so many different areas of this. And if they do, it doesn't break the game. It doesn't break the adventure. And that's one of the good things about it. Well, from my mind, anytime going the wrong way breaks the adventure is poor design. Yeah. But, but I think we can all think of those modules in the past where if they went the wrong way, the, the game would break. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Or I, I can't count. I there was one module I recently read. It said, "Yeah, if the players see this before this happens, just say they don't see it. <laughs> so that yeah. way, when they when it does happen, they do." I'm like, "But it's a door. Why wouldn't they notice the secret door the first time they look for it?" Yep. I was going to say, good players should break the adventure. <laughs> right. If they can't break the adventure, they're not good players. Yeah. I do have one criticism here. I'm looking on page 39, area 5, and they've got like three assassins. And my first thought is, so what? Assassins are useful when they can use some of their primary abilities, which isn't just assassination, but like disguise and right. spying. Other than that, they're they're basically just a, a wimpy thief. Yeah. So to that extent... Uh, I see it as kind of pointless to have assassins in here unless they're actually doing something where it makes sense to have assassins. And there's, I'm looking through the text, and there's nothing to indicate. I mean, they're just the assassins are just uh, basically another type of pirate. Yeah, they're all just kind of hanging out at that point. If I was writing this, I'd have a little blurb in there that would say, okay, this person is an assassin, and they're going to try to do such and such, and leave it up to the DM to fit them in, but give the DM some ideas. Right. 
maybe and how to make use of the abilities. Right. Maybe the pirates. Maybe it looks like the uh, pirates are holding these people hostage or kidnap them, and they're actually assassins. Mm-hmm. And then the players rescue them, and like, oh, we're we save these people from becoming slaves, and next thing you know, they're backstabbing them and yep. poisoning them. Good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and I, I agree. I mean, I thought the assassins and the pirates, as they're presented as uh, an encounter here, kind of generic. Like, there's three assassins. They're all fourth level. They've all got 14 hit points. I mean, that's a little too generic for my taste. I would probably, you know, flesh them out a little bit um, because invariably, you know, my party wants to capture one of them and question them, and I have to kind of be prepared for you know, what's their name? What's their, you know, I mean, I don't flesh out a whole backstory on every minor NPC, but I do like to be prepared with that and have at least a separate stat block, you know, for them. And there's adventures in the past I've had that. In fact, Saltmarsh that we're going through right now has the smugglers listed as, you know, here's a table of all the smugglers and, you know, you drop them in and they're all a little bit different. So I, I would have liked to have seen that a little bit, but this, you know, it does simplify it. And of course the DM can, can modify that as they want to. And for a, a, this is supposed to be for sixth to ninth level. Yeah, nine, uh, basically zero level pirates and three fourth level assassins seems to be a pretty light encounter. But at the same time, it's a good way to, especially you know, if there's a battle here, the party's going to have an easy win. It's going to set an unrealistic expectation for them that the next encounter is going to be easy, which is, I like to do that with parties. Let them uh, think the wrong thing right it, let them get overconfident yes that's the word yes they'll, they'll think oh, okay we'll just be able to go through slay everything then they realize no doesn't quite work like that and quite frankly not everything they come across needs to be slayed some of it if they just don't poke around where they shouldn't be it won't bother them because there's quite a few things if they explore certain rooms it that if they don't start disturbing stuff it, it, it won't bother them, but we'll get to that. Those things as we get to them. Mm-hmm. Um, once they get through the entrance hall, they make their way into the stable. And then this is where the players can just start looting the room for some rope. Um, the, the stables were for uh, visitors of the monastery so that can, so they can travel around the uh, compound. Um, nothing major other than just adding some ambiance to the uh, building. And then, yeah. Well, in the stable, they've got a chunk of rope that's in poor condition. Yeah. And I like that for role-playing, because the party says, well, we'll try it anyways. It opens up a lot of interesting possibilities. Right. All of a sudden, they're like, yeah, the rope, it looks a little tattered, but eh, it seems solid enough. And then they go to use it, and uh-oh, that rope's starting to give way. Wah-wah. <laughs> <laughs> Should have checked it out a little closer. Yeah, test everything well first. Exactly. Yeah. And then after the stables, there's the Hall of Toil. This is where the the clerics use this hall to impress visitors and basically like, ooh, look at look at how cool we are. And then this those players will see some footprints leading through the southern doors and through double doors and so just kind of hinting at, yeah, there's some other people in here besides yourself. So, and that w- and so now it'll be a matter of seeing which way they choose. Um, and we have the vestry 
because once you visit this monastery, they, everyone's expected to wear the same clothes as the clerics. And then there's a bunch of robes there. Again, this is just adding to the story of this place has been abandoned for a very long time because these robes are all mildewed and have holes, and if they start handling them, they'll start falling apart. So they're just building a pawn. This is an abandoned monastery, but not mm -hmm. really. Yeah, they set the stage very well. Yeah. And then we hit the Room of Reflection. This, it has dust-covered white marble tiles and, like, rugs against the wall. And then there's also a fountain uh, uh, in front of the stone walls, well, a basin, uh, 10 feet in diameter. And there's an arm hanging over the lip with fingers just above the floor. And, yeah, if the players go... Uh, making too much noise and poke themselves a little too close to that basin, out comes a water weird. Mm -hmm. So, again, something a lot of players aren't quite going to expect. Yeah, and I really like, uh, in the DM's notes here, it says that when they approach, um, the water starts to bubble and froth, you know, as the water weirds are getting ready to come out, and it makes the... Uh, the arm that's in there kind of flop around and I can just see, you know, describing that to the players, like what's going on? You know, this arm is flopping. Right. And it kind of throws them a little red herring there. Cause they're thinking, what is this undead? What's this thing in the pool? And they're not thinking about water weirds coming out at them. Right. They're like, uh -huh. uh Oh, the hands, the issue, not the water itself. Mm hmm. Yeah. Good misdirection. Yeah. Yeah. And then once they get past room and reflection, they hit the antechamber. It's where, visitors came to see the high priest or priestess. It's basically a waiting room. Um, and with that, the, this is where they'll also start coming across the first undead. In this waiting room, the specters and ghosts of the dead linger and, the, that are, and they're trapped because of the stuff that happened here. So, But these are undead that aren't going to bother the players. But, again, they're going to have deformed faces and, like, cast shadows and spots just to make the players a little un at ease. So, just more setting the ambiance of this setting. There's, you'll find a lot, there's like 40-some rooms, and a lot of these rooms are just building the story, building the setting. Which is, which is actually a good thing, because I think too often when you build a large complex like this players and dms kind of get caught in the trap of wanting to put something to do in every room and that's just overkill it bogs your game down so yep. yeah i agree i mean i i do think that's really good to have good descriptions of rooms that had a purpose but don't have something to fight in there you know or don't necessarily have you know you know, secret door in it or something. Otherwise it's like, well, this room must have some reason we got to be in here, you know, and then players start to expect certain encounters. But, um, you know, these ghouls again in this well, uh, they're to me again, another good example of how the author really laid the backstory. Well, I mean, why are the ghouls down in this well? Well, he explains how, you know, what, what happened to them, how they ended up down there and, and became ghouls. And, um, Again, I think on surface, you see all this variety of things that the author put in this adventure. And, and at first glance, you think, well, maybe you're just, like you said earlier, throwing things in that are cool. But no, it all does seem to have a real purpose and a real reason for being there and, and in some kind of uh, uneasy balance. 
It all makes sense. It does, yeah. Right. I, I could almost see taking this setting but in just turning it back a couple hundred years and maybe building a story off of it before it was abandoned. There's enough here. I think you could actually come up with something. Yeah, that sounds like that'd be a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the monastery in its heyday. Right, yeah, because there was a lot going on in its heyday. And then, so after we move from there, we go into the audience chamber. It's where... The ranking clerics conducted business with outsiders, and this wing is basically where the outsiders would come and actually visit the monasteries. And then this is another one that it just describes that you can tell this room used to be very ornate, but now it's decrepit. There's insect carvings, there's termites have eaten through it, and yeah, it's just a rotted room that's saying that used to at one point be full of life. And then, so after we move from this, we're going to the Garden of Suffering. This is where they tended, the monks tended to their bees in the garden. And then all the, you know, then although the beehives have not been used in years, though, there's still some of that sacred honey. So if players decide to play Winnie the Pooh and go into the beehive, they can actually get some of the nectar, which actually gives you some healing. 2d8 hit points. And then, so, but then I like the idea with this in area where everything is focused on the bees, and then you hit them with ghouls because everyone's going to be expecting giant bees or something of that nature, right. and, and it's not right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's this well that's in there as well. Then everyone's going to be like, "Oh, there's bees. There's the beehives. That's the quote-unquote threat that's obvious." And then, of course, one player is going to want to poke and like, "Oh, I wonder what's in the well." And uh oh, here comes eight ghouls. <laughs> So, yeah, that that's a nice little twist of, yeah, don't go looking where you shouldn't be looking. So, and then we, from the Garden of Suffering, we go to the Chamber of Obedience. And this is where, like, a few slaves and monks and others that show disobedience were basically dealt with. And it's basically a torture room. And anyone that broke the rules or... Uh, stood up to the overseers, had to go here. And at this point, uh, this room is now infested with shadows. Again, when you're dealing with a building that's dark, rotting, decrepit, just having some dark spots along the wall, players aren't going to uh, really notice. It's going to just seem like, oh, it's another dark room. But no, those shadows are actually shadows that will attack you and drain your strength. So... Again, just another little monster that's a little out of the ordinary that put the players on edge of everything in this building. Mm-hmm. And then from there, we move on to the viewing chamber. Yeah, because there was a high priestess who liked to watch the torture work, so it overlooks the... Uh, this This room was constructed so they could observe through peepholes the torturing commencing. And again, it sets. There's nothing here, but it sets the ambiance. Right. It's just more of okay. These were just really nasty human beings that existed in this monastery, and it's just building, building upon that because because we really haven't even got to the bad stuff yet. This is just getting setting the scene still. 
Right. I mean, even though it's been, you know, what, a couple hundred years since this, you know, the monastery was functioning, you still get when you read it and when you describe it to your players this aura of evil, you know, around the whole place, both current from the, you know, the pirates and in the past from the monks. Right. And then once the players continue moving on, they come to the Grand Hall, and then this is where they do have their first major combat, I would say. Yeah, I love this. I love this area. Yes, it's when they come in, they uh, see two hill giants, nine pirates, and three assassins, and they're all just scattered throughout the hall. And uh, they are just waiting there and players to come in and then even if the players deal with those there's still more because they also put some carotid uh, columns those animated columns we've talked about in a creature feature many many moons ago to deal with as well so again it's just putting the the scenery the statues you think are just innocuous they're actually going to kill you Okay. Now, I'm a little, my criticism of the assassins earlier holds true here as well. If I was designing this, I would have the assassins, as soon as they know there's trouble, are going to try to position themselves to be able to assassinate or backstab right. the party members. Yeah. And here they're just kind of put out there as, as just general monsters. It would be nice to have a little... A little bit of description as to what type of tactics these creatures are going to use. Again, the hill giants, I don't expect a whole heck of a lot from them, nor the zero-level pirates, but I'd like to see a little bit more from the assassins to give the, the DM a little idea what, what they can do with them to make use of those special skills, especially since they've got longbows. Right. You know, if you allow, if you as the DM allow assassination via bow... Yeah, <laughs> that's a really, really ugly situation. Although they are fourth level versus a sixth to ninth level party, it's still a, it's enough of a chance that once the party knows what's going on, once the players know what's going on, it'll give them a little bit of a negative thrill. Right. Albeit, if you just made those take take those longbows and give them some poison tipped arrows. Ah, yes, thank you. Just, Excellent. Just doing that will all of a sudden. Okay, we're not worried about the arrows. Yeah. Not a big deal. Then all of a sudden, one player gets hit and fails that save. Uh-oh. We need to take out those guys all the way and back, and then you have to go through nine pirates and two hill giants to get to them. Yep. And a lot of times I use a poison that uh, I don't really care for the save or die poisons. I'll uh, use like a caustic poison where it's, it's good for 20 points, save for 10. Yeah. And something like that, party gets hit with a couple of arrows, and then all of a sudden, oops. Yeah, I like using poisons that will start maybe sapping an ability score. So in every Ooh. hour or two, they have to make another save or lose another point. So it's kind of a race against the clock. Uh-oh, we got to cure this poison now. Oh, I like that. I've never done that before. I wonder if to nice. stand that. That's a good idea. Yeah. You know, one thing I do like about this area, this is my favorite area of the whole um, adventure. Because on the map, it's kind of this... Kind of wide open where there's, but there's a couple like buildings in the middle of this grand hall area. 
And I just kind of have, you know, vision of my party kind of running in different directions and hill giants going one way, assassins going another way. These columns come to life and start attacking people. It just, you know, could be a quite a chaotic uh, combat encounter, but uh, also a lot of fun, I think, to, to run through because there's, you know, different factions here going on. I mean, the columns are just defending, who you know, attacking anybody that gets near. So, uh, you know, it could be, could be very uh, entertaining, I think. Yes. Yes. So once they get past this grand hall, then they come to the Temple of Braum. This is Braum being the god that was worshipped by the monks and clerics in this monastery. It was in this chamber they pulled the, performed their rites and uh, prayers and ceremonies to the Lady of Toil. And then Mordramamo was a staunch devotee of the Earth Dragon, who you may remember from such modules as A3 and A4. Uh, so, and then when they get in, they, you can tell the players that someone has gone to great effort to remove the icons and symbols that were here. It's like this temple has been desecrated. Uh, there's a, also a 10 foot tall idol made of earth and stone that rises from a pedestal in the center of the room. And the idol is nude appear, uh, depicting a rearing dragon, just laying the seeds for, uh, uh, Maybe there is a slaver here, since uh, there's that earth dragon. And the main line at the end is, there's nothing of value here. Again, we're just setting the scenery, laying more hints that, yeah, there, there's something to do with the earth dragon called in the slavers in this. And then we move on to the monk cells, where the... There's two wooden doors on the north wall that lead to the monk cells. There's six cells with a small shrine in them, uh, and the three pan. There's also a triglyphs uh, standing on the small table surrounded by old dusty candles. And the three panels show different scenes. The left shows harvesting honey from hives. The right shows a righteous cleric calling up a sea monster to attack a ship, and the central depicts a middle-aged woman with honey blonde hair. The wings extended out from her back, and she's holding a glowing staff in both hands. So this is uh, just laying more scenery. Just saying that this is kind of what was happening in this monastery. I like cells in general. They tend to lull the party because they, they search a cell, nothing. Search another one, nothing. And this goes on and on and on. And all of a sudden, when they're lulled into, okay, there's nothing here, they find something. Right. In this case, we got the haunted monk cells. Yes, yes, the haunted monk cells, because the if they search this cell, then they they find a loose board under the bed, and in it is two vials and a small and a journal. Much of it's unreadable, but the part that is readable basically says it was written by a crazy man, who enjoyed uh, torturing and suffering of others. So, and then. If they stay there a little too long after finding that journal, that's when the monk's ghost appears. So, so it just makes more, just building upon the story of the monastery. Yeah, the, as we've already seen with the torture room, here's someone that one of the monks actually really enjoyed their work. Then, of course, we have a laboratory. So, for those that complain there are no bathrooms in dungeons, <laughs> we have our bathroom. And if your players decide to go digging in the laboratory, there's nothing there, so let them dig around and poo all day. 
Because uh, that's, you, that's an interesting place for something really nasty to be. Yeah. I, yeah, I could – I've all – or sometimes what I'll do is I'll actually – maybe some coins or something fell in there and then make them roll save versus disease. I like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. So I, I, I like that. I use that – use laboratories and piles of poos of reason to use the disease rules out of the DMG. Mm-hmm. And building upon the disease rules, the next room is the infirmary. And this is basically just a bunch of rotting beds and the cabinets just uh, that have uh, mortar and pestle and like old bandages and dried plants. I mean, and if the players search, they can find a few things they can use. But uh, other than that, it's just building that making it a real building as opposed to a caricature of a building. Yeah, and this is a point with some room like this where I, you know, I would refer to some random table of things you might find in here. You know, um, I like to just have some things because the players always want to search through stuff. What can I use? And um, I like to always have some some list of things to fall back and say, oh, you find this file or that or whatever. So Right. Yeah. The players tend to be very scavengers, especially in rooms that seem like it has lots of miscellaneous stuff. Right. Right. Well, and again, I think this room and the lavatory before that are examples of the author putting stuff in this monastery that makes sense. It makes it logical. It makes it seem like I know even when I design my own, you know, maps and stuff, I quite often forget to put in a lavatory, you know, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's not something you, you just off to the top of your head think about. But, you know, it makes sense because all these dungeons that, you know, people have been making over the years and no place for people to use the restroom. And years ago, I played with a guy. If he found a lavatory, he would have to dig there because he was positive there'd be something of use there. Ick. Yeah. Why? Why would there be anything of use unless you needed to relieve yourself? Or you got a garden. If you got a garden, I mean, hey, that's worth the gold. Right. True. Very true. So once the players go through the infirmary, that. There's also the Templar Quarters. This is basically where the assassins were sleeping. Um, and at that point, sounds of the combat in the Great Hall will wake them. And then so you could actually cause more assassins to join the fight in the Great Hall. And then this is the room they were sleeping in. Because you'll also find out in this module that it's con- talking about if the players have done combat via through like random encounter with groups of pirates or assassins, start cutting back on the number of assassins and pirates they find in the monastery. So it's not like there's this infinite number of pirate assassins roaming the place. Mm-hmm. Although all the assassins seem to be in groups of three. Yeah. They're, they're, you almost want to come up with a reason for that. What would be the backstory of the assassins must travel in threes? Uh, I'm going to guess it's probably more, yeah, might be copy and paste on the, the author's part. Yeah. Or just, well, we'll throw three here, three there, three the next place. Right. It'd be nice to vary that a little bit and also vary the levels. Right. And as much as the zero level pirates are good, I'd toss in a couple, they don't have to be that high, but again, compared to zero level, even just a couple of first and second level fighter pirates. Right. Would vary it enough and make the party wonder, okay, what am I going to run into next? It would just... Change, you know, change things up. Yeah, and mix it up, and it really wouldn't uh, change the difficulty level either. Because really, 
outside of the Grand Hall, most of these fights, the players at 6th to ninth level will be going through pretty easy. Yep. Yeah, it seems, in that respect, it's awful light. Right. But there's nothing that says that we, you know, we can scale things up. Right. I may even start small, and is if the players are having too easy a time, just start scaling it up as they go. Instead mm-hmm. of, so. Easy enough to roll up some fighters. Definitely. Just keep the stats the same, add more hit points, and roll them on a different table. And... So after we get into the quarters, this is where the plot thickens a bit. Once we hit the high priest quarters, because this mm-hmm. is where Jeffrey and and his lover Anilada, uh, a monk of the same affiliation as uh, Jeffrey, uh, both of the Scarlet Brotherhood, this is where they await uh, more Dramamo to awaken. This is the escaped slaver. So here is it's there's a little bit of a twist because Jeffrey was appointed to maintain this abandoned monastery for the slavers, but his lover isn't quite what she seems. For she is a succubus, and she's actually causing him to go evil because he's actually lawful. I think he was lawful evil, getting shifted. Yeah, lawful evil. Right. And she's uh, pushing him towards neutrality or to chaotic evil. Right. And because of this, he hasn't really been uh, keeping the pirates and assassins under his command, and they've been kind of left to their own devices. Hence some of the disorganization of of the uh, resistance the players have met as they've been moving through. So... And then what they what they'll find is if they uh end up killing Jeffrey, Anilda will basically beg and do whatever she can to please don't kill me, I'll help you. He was evil and all of this and give him a sob story, pull at their heartstrings and just waiting for that opportunity to double cross them. Yep. Uh, one criticism I've got here, and I, I don't mean to be too overly critical, right. but I would never put in a magic user without some type of bodyguard, some type of meat shield. Because right. in general, the party versus one of anything, the party's going to win. But if he's got even first level fighters as meat shields, they keep the party off of him and it gives him a chance to unload on them. Right. That changes the quality of the adventure tremendously. And I'm looking at his spell level or his spell list. I could have a lot of fun with that. Oh, I don't yeah. think the party would feel quite the same way, but, well, yeah. that's too bad. Yeah. <laughs> yes, he, he, he's got quite the uh, spell list to uh, just really ruin a party's day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And not to mention his own personal magic items as well. Wanda Lightning. <laughs> mm-hmm. so. I was going to say... Um, I would if I'm running him. I'm going to use that wand of lightning before I do anything else. Because what do wands take by the book? Is that like three segments? Right. So as soon as they open the door, blam. Yeah. And again, I would have a guard outside the door so that there's no way the party could surprise him. There'll be an altercation outside. He hears it, and then things get ugly. That that would make it a more or it, I mean, if, if the encounter's too easy, that's no fun for the party either. If they just, you know, romp through everything, but every every good fight. Yeah. 
I would almost say maybe the battle in the Great Hall made enough noise if it went long enough that Jeffrey became aware. That's a good point. It's hard to fight a bunch of a couple of hill giants and not uh, make some noise. Right. Yeah. It's not like these rooms are in uh, that far apart. So yeah, you could totally just say, "Oh, he was aware of intruders via the uh, the ba- that battle," much like the assassins in the uh, other room were alerted. So, and then. And also, I'm also thinking the point of this encounter wasn't so much the battle with Jeffrey, but having this succubus join the party. I'm almost wondering if that was more of the point. I would think so, because it gives you a chance. You, I'm you, the DM, to, to do some interesting things. Interesting from the point of view of, what's that old saying? Oh, God, oh, God, we're going to die. That kind of interesting. Right. There could even be a situation where one of the players is uh, in dire need, and she's right there. She could help him, and she's like, nah, never mind. Yep. I'd also want Jeffrey to be able to escape. Right. Uh, I think it would be much more entertaining for the party to try to continue searching through this whole monastery with him, Organizing uh, resistance, finding all the uh, the pirates who haven't been killed yet, right? And stick them on them, and uh, with Jeffrey doing sniping. Never thought of sniping with a wand of lightning, but yeah, I think that would work nicely. Yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah, and he actually <laughs> does have a polymorph self spell, so that makes a perfect means of escape. Mm-hmm. You could just oh, oh poof, I'm now like a a rat, or I'm now a small little insect, and he just flutters off. And then Monster Summoning 3. Yes. You can do lots of cool things with that. Right. Yeah. The hold person. Protection from normal missiles, so you're yep. th- you're not they're not going to be able to rain arrows on him. Or you could just go cast invisibility. Poof. I'm invisible now. Or mirror image. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he, there's lots of ways if you want to keep him alive, he can keep himself alive. Or if you can get alone with one of the PC's friends. Yes. Yes, uh, which would just be even more interesting considering he's controlled by a succubus who he then controls one of the party members. Yep. <sighs> I don't know. I would – my party players would – they never would buy the succubus in conjoining <laughs> the party. They don't trust me. Anybody anybody they find in a dungeon, they don't trust them. They don't let them in, you know. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I suppose if you played it right, you could convince them. Yeah. You know, especially if he had like Paladin in the party or somebody who, um, you know, wanted to kind of protect her. So. Right. Right. Especially considering you have that whole slaver background. She could even pass off. He was holding me against my will. They captured me, blah, blah, blah. Maybe she's just a slave. Yeah, that's a good point. So. You know, it's funny, we're a little bit negative on this encounter and a few others, but it, this does the one thing it really absolutely needs to do, and it's got us thinking. We're coming up with some really cool ideas as to what we could do with what we're given here. And again, since it's a module, I'd like to have the author toss out some ideas, again, for DMs that aren't as inventive. But uh, again, for us, yeah. th- this, tr- this particular encounter is working wonders. Right, yeah, it's capturing that old school feel because that's how the modules back then were written. They didn't spell Mm -hmm. everything out. A lot was left up 
to the DM to make it their own adventure. And the fact that we could have a five-minute conversation on one room of this, just saying all the different ways you can spin the story, is a great thing. Uh-huh. Yeah, and Jeffrey's a good example of a character that I like to, you know, like you said earlier, Brian, is if he can escape, there's so much more you can do with him. Uh-huh. And maybe not just even in this adventure, but maybe he escapes entirely, and now you've got a whole new separate problem to deal with down the road. Oh, absolutely. I'm a big believer in long-term enemy NPCs. And they don't have to be all that tough to be dangerous. Right. That's true. Yeah. Although this guy, oh, the 10th level magic is there's nothing to sneeze at, even if you're a higher-level party. Right. Mm-hmm. A few well-placed spells and your party's toast. <laughs> So once they get past the uh, high priestess quarters, then they go to the under priest quarters. And these are just abandoned rooms. And then they just, it's just a bed, wardrobe chest. Termites have softened the wood. But there is something to be wary of. Due to the termites, there's a 20% chance the floor could give way. So. Yeah, players need to be kind of tiptoe through this room, and if the floor does give way and they fall, yeah, they take 2d6 points of damage. They're 6th level, 6th to ninth level, yeah, not a big deal. Uh, except they fall into a pit of black pudding. So, so yeah, again, it one, it builds on, this is a decrepit building. As, because now, now all of a sudden they're going to be paranoid of stepping anywhere. Once mm-hmm. they realize the floor is rotted. And even if they don't land on the black pudding, when you start to see something like that, again, it, it raises that sense of fear in the in the player's mind. And I get this vision of a, a guy in plate mail trying to climb a wooden wall. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it reminded me of how dangerous the black pudding is. I've, I haven't used one in quite some time. I forgot it was a 10-hit dice monster. Right. Oh, yeah. But, and since it dissolves wooden metal, um, that doesn't bode well for your sword. No. No. Yeah, if your fighter falls into that, yeah, he's going to end up naked. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, just another thing that's just going to put the players on edge, and I th- and it just keeps building and building. Um, the next room is the guest hall, and it's locked, and there's nothing really in there either other than... Uh, the it's in poor condition and the floor is rotting in places. It's not collapsing, but if they enter this room before the underpriest quarters, that'll kind of give them a little foreshadowing of, huh? Maybe this floor could give way. So, and then we move into the penitentiary. This is where the prisoners were kept, and the Scarlet Brotherhood. Uh, continued this practice once they took it over. And there were several sons of Caius roaming about this. So the, they were actually roaming the monastery, but instead of destroying them, Jeffrey decided to just, eh, I'll throw them in some cells in case I find a use for them. So, at that end, yeah, when the players... No. Yep, go ahead. I was just going to say, the one thing I'd like to see in something like this is anything that's in the monster manual, I would expect everyone who's DMing to own a PH, DMG, and monster manual. Like with the Fiend Folio, a lot of people don't have it, so it would be nice to have a little bit more description 
of anything that's not in, in one of the three primary books, just so mm-hmm. in case the DM doesn't have it. Yes, Son of Kais, that is, that's Folio, right? It is. Yeah. 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 And it'd be nice to have that. Again, not 100% essential. That'd be nice. Right. But yeah, again, this is a monster that the players probably aren't going to recognize off the bat. So, and it says they, they're, tra- they're plus they're also trapped in cells too. So they're not really a threat to the players unless they, the players agitate them and they start trying to hammer their way out of the cell doors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Can't the uh, sons of Caius shoot those worms too? Oh yeah. They have the, uh, yeah, the worms that come out of their flesh. So that could be the players think, oh, well, they're in the cells. They're not a big threat. We can kind of wander around in here, not a big deal, and all of a sudden worm crossfire. Right. And they also have fear, too. So some players may just walk in, see them, and go running in terror. Mm-hmm. Right. So. And then, then, so once we get out of the penitentiary, we go into the uh, Gaylord's room. Uh, this is when, where the Gaylords live when the monastery was active. Each one was worse than the last, and the worst of the bunch still lives here, as it's put. This room has a chamber, uh, chambers features a, a chamber features a cot, a chest, and other accoutrements, shuttered windows, and then there's a a corpse lying on the cot in the field position. And the players are probably going to investigate, which they shouldn't, because it's a coffer corpse. So yes. The uh, last Gaylord was so cruel and evil that the demons left his soul to rot inside the flesh and the suffering on, and spread suffering on the material plane. So whenever a player gets within five feet of it, it, it jumps and attacks. And this is something that can only be hit by magical weapons. So it's only two hit dice. But again, at sixth and ninth level, they should have magical weapons. But for that player that doesn't, they're going to have some problems. Yep. They're a nice, uh, it's a different take on uh, a zombie. Again, a lot of players, are, uh, the way I describe it, would mistake it for a zombie. Yeah, but it's a little bit more more active and it's not slow. Right. I found that uh, you don't have to make big changes. If you take a zombie, okay, by the book, they're slow. Yeah. If you make one that's fast and make that change, oh, no change but that. Uh, the average player is going to go, whoa, and they're going to expect a like a George Romero zombie. Right. Oh, my God, don't let it bite me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. J- just throwing a little twist on those old uh, stale uh, monsters causes the players to just really freak out because all of a sudden you took showed them something that they expect the outcome and gave and then just spun it around. And all of a sudden what they thought was familiar isn't. Yep. And then those little changes, well, again, it's making, as we talked about earlier, making it fresh and new. Right. And then this also has the first temptation for the players as well, because under the cot is a chest, and all players love opening chests. It's a chest with four buttons. But it has a trap. And the chest fires a poison dart as a ten-hit-die monster. If a player triggers it. Yeah, that's rough. Yeah. And this is one of those save or die uh, traps as well. 
The character hit takes one point of damage and must make a saving throw versus poison. A character who fails the saving throw dies in a turn. So, a little bit harsh, but definitely fitting of a first edition module. Yep. And I like the fact that the uh, the death takes a turn, because in real life, poisons... But, uh, in the movies, you know, you get strung by a scorpion, you turn green and die. It doesn't quite work that way. It's actually a lot nastier. Right. And I think it's more... If the player just... Or the character just dies, okay, he's dead, everybody moves on, or whatever, but... When you've got a character that's slowly failing, it gives every, you know keeps it in everyone's mind. It's a little bit more uh, exciting, right? And, it, and this also gives them a uh, a small window to of reprieve too. If they can figure out, oh no, what happened? Oh, he's poisoned. By they should hopefully have a cleric that can cure the poison by then. Yep. Well, it ramps up the drama too, because you can, you know, the the figurative hourglass, the sand slipping away. You know, if you've got one turn to, you know, if you don't have a cleric right there, what are you going to do? You know, I mean, try to figure something else. You know, right. And and plus, the players don't know: are they just getting progressively sicker? They don't necessarily know they're going to die either. They just think they're getting weaker. Right. So maybe at first they don't realize they're like, okay, you're poisoned. Shrug it off will keep going on then as you get weaker and weaker then maybe it's too late when they finally realize uh oh we should have dealt with this as soon as you got hit so and then so after they get stung with this poison dart they go on to the deck this deck extends out just offering a big view of the cove and the ocean so you can kind of see what the uh, monks would have looked out as, as the ships approached at sea and when they summoned giant sea monsters to uh, attack ships as shown in the one uh, painting earlier. Um, here, though, this they'll also see some wasp nests hanging from the corner and the occasional wasp coming out. I take exception to the last line here that reads, ordinary harmless wasps make their nest here. Uh, wasp nests are never harmless. No, no, no. <laughs> Actually, in D&D terms, I, I would be tempted to come up with a ruling that, like, for every, I don't know, five hornets or wasps that sting a character, they lose a point. Right. And have clouds of them, and uh, just for the drama. Right. Right. Or may, or you could even have uh, maybe make them, have them make a constitution check to see if they're allergic. Ooh. All, all of a sudden, their eyes start swelling. It's getting a little harder to breathe. It's not so much that they can't keep going, but now they're like minus one or two to hit because their eyes are swollen so much. Or they or they lose a little bit of constitution until they heal up just from the uh, increased inflammation. Yep. And just a way to add a little twist to something that seems rather innocuous, especially considering, oh, we already saw the giant wasps. These little ones mean nothing. Well, yeah, if you get stung by them, yeah, still could be some damage. And then after the deck, we have a nice rope bridge. And the player should hopefully have figured out by now just running across pretty much anything in this monastery is a really bad idea. Because this rope bridge, they can move. If they move it half their normal rate, they'll cross it no problems. Move faster than that, there's a 10% chance of a board breaking, at which point they proceed, they must make a roll versus saving th 
Monsters throw versus death magic or fall 100 feet below. So, yes, another watch your step trap. And, yeah, if they do watch their steps, then they get attacked by wyverns. If they haven't already dealt with the wyverns earlier in the adventure. Yeah, I'm looking at that, and that's another area where I'd like to have a little bit more guidance. Um, what different? Okay, the wyverns attack when you're on the bridge. What does it do? Again, as a DM, I'd look at that and I said, "Well, okay, uh, that's going to increase the chance of you breaking a board. Uh, maybe I don't know, make a saving throw every round to see if you break a board or not." Yeah. But for again, for the DMs that are aren't used to making stuff up like that. You know, I'd like I'd like to see more guidance. You're right. Yeah. Or what happens? Say the wyverns attack and they miss and they hit the boards. <laughs> Maybe they start breaking boards, and all of a sudden players now have to jump across gaps on the bridge. Just to yeah. add to, they could either deal do battle with these wyverns on this cl- rope bridge that's falling apart, or they can try to hop across dodging wyverns and get to the other end of the bridge. Yeah. So, yeah, just another way to add a little bit of drama because this bridge spans across the uh, the main shoreline onto a little island. And uh, on that island is where there's a the what's called the Anchorets Perch. This is this is an island that the monks came to seek quiet and distance themselves from the activity. So basically uh-huh. when they went to seek their inner selves and there is a nest on this island made of trees and rocks in a circular shape. So, of course, the players will investigate because ends up this was the nest of the wyverns. Mm-hmm. So hopefully you've already dealt with them by now. Otherwise, if they find you coming after their nest, they're going to be even more ferocious. That, that's a good stack of treasure in there. I'm looking at uh, the treasure for Area 30. That's... It's a good stock. It's uh, definitely worthwhile trying to cross that bridge. Right. But you cross the bridge, you get all this stuff. Now you have all this extra weight to cross the rotting bridge. I would maybe even, if they try to lug the thousands upon thousands of uh, coins back across the bridge, increase that 10% chance up a little bit. Yep. Yeah. Get, get, get the, uh, everyone to think about it. Right. Yeah, they look at the gold, look at the bridge, look at the gold, look at the bridge. At that point, they're like, "What? maybe we can tame one of these wyverns and fly it across. Or do something with a rope where you got everything bagged up heavily and uh, run a rope across. I mean, there's a lot of things you could do here, but the whole idea is player creativity. Right. Maybe you can tempt them to use that rotted rope they picked up earlier. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Oh, that would be hilarious. Yes. They think, oh, we got this 50 feet of rope we found earlier. Use it. They think that rope was put there to get across the bridge. Not really. They, they, they find the bridge is probably sturdier than the rope. But once, so anyways, once they get on the island, though, there's there's the shrine. And then uh, basically rain, wind termites basically reduce the shrine to basically a shell of its former shelf. It's uh, falling apart and... This is basically kind of like a base the players can use. There's nothing, once they're in there, nothing really going to bother them. They can basically kind of catch their breath on this island. 
I usually like to give the players a couple of places where they can find, as long as they use good sense. Right. They can safely rest, and uh, this one fits the bill there. Although, if the bridge breaks while they're over there, it makes them even safer. Right. <laughs> and then at that point, they're going to need to get kind of creative to uh, get across. Fortunately, the water isn't too deep that they could they could swim across. I mean, it's I mean it's only about twenty feet, but if you have all that gold or your armor. Well, according to the rope bridge, uh, section twenty eight, it says the water is a hundred feet down. So they would have to get down 100 feet to the water to swim across. Right, yeah, they have to go down the nice, a nice little slope. So that could be an adventure upon itself. Mm-hmm. Good place for uh, player creativity. Totally. Although, yeah, I'm looking at the map again. I've actually got two copies of the uh, PDF, so I can have the map in one screen and everything else in the other. And according to the map where the... Uh, Bridges, it looks like it's pretty steep, straight down. Yeah. But the rest of it, the party could work their way down and then work around and then swim over to the area where they first came up. Although the rules there had something to do, if I recall correctly, uh, sea snakes. Yes. Which, which uh, again, from uh, a sadistic DM point of view, is just entertainment. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's very much a pick-your-poison type scenario. Okay. Uh, oh, and, and so... Now we move back to the main uh, part of the uh, monastery as we go into the guest room. And this is just adding more flavor. This is where the visitors would be able to stay. And it basically, it just reeks of mildew. And you can see where there's plush carpet on the floors and the furniture's toppled and smashed. So just more of that. Something happened in this room to destroy the furniture and it just wasn't left to the time to rot. Mm Mm-hmm. And then we, then from there, it's to the me- a meeting room. It's a, you got yourself a large wooden table with tapestries on the wall, and then this is where the Scarlet Brotherhood agents embedded in the monastery. This is so they base how they infiltrated the monastery and was able to take it over. Um, and another thing in this module, it also gives you value to like artwork. And because if you want to take the tapestry, it actually tells you what it's worth. (laughs) Because Mm -hmm. there are those players that like looting everything, including very large, bulky tapestries. Yep. If it's not nailed down, take it. If it is nailed down, take the wall with it. Yeah. Yep. And then we go on from there. We have the Haunted Hall. This is a hall that earlier mentioned that no one really goes into. I wonder why. For good reason. Yes. (laughs) Because once the uh, mines were emptied and the priests prepared to abandon the monastery for a more profitable area, the slaves created a revolt. They took down the high priest and killed the high templar. But uh, before they were all killed, the spirits of the murdered villains linger here as specters. So again, it gives you more of the backstory of there was a slave revolt, and the slaves actually did kill their evil masters. But, the, of course, evil masters don't go away so easy. So now they infest this hall. So enjoy your two specters. Hope you don't get energy drained too much. Hmm. Yep. And then yeah, the next couple of areas, uh, the windowed rooms in the hall, were uh, skimpy detail. But again, at this point, I'd say you've had an... If running it as a DM, you've got enough flavor that you could wing it. 
Right. It's just more, it's setting the scenes for, this was a real place at one point, so you need a kitchen, you need a pantry, you need your just little window watching room. I mean, then you have your, then of course, once you get through all that, you hit your dining hall where you have nine pirates and three assassins again. Yep. I I just got to love it. It's like they just copied and pasted that. I mean, and the hit points are all the same. The levels are all the same. I'm a little, that, that kind of irks me. Now, uh, previous encounters, well, you look at the specters, they have, the two specters have different hit points. And there's a couple other previous encounters where they had differing hit points, but here right. they're just cut and paste. Right. Uh, just uh, sliding back briefly to the kitchen and pantry. The one thing I really like about this is they've got a cold room. Yeah. Again, uh, my dad was born uh, prior to the Great Depression, mm-hmm. and he talks you know, about stuff when he was a kid, and you know, you had the ice room in some places where you would get the big block of ice or multiple blocks of ice, and it was all packed in sawdust, and that was your refrigerator. And they've got that here now. That, that's uh, just kind of nice flavor. Yeah, it's just, again, it's making it a real place, like throwing in the laboratory. It's making this real. It's making it livable, as opposed, so that way players won't be asking, so how did they actually preserve food? And it's just little touches like that that bring the whole building to life. So, and then once you get through the main dining hall, then you have the private dining hall. And then this is where the high-ranking members of the monastery, and it just more of the same. You have bone candle holders. You're just, we're just setting the ambiance, and wall hangings depicting faceless slaves at work. Some puddles of water on the floor where there's holes in the roof. Just setting that eerie setting once again, and then we move on. We have servants' quarters, and they'll see a couple skeletons in this room and uh unlike other things they find other bodies they've seen laying in beds these skeletons won't attack them albeit you could have the skeletons attack them if you want but this is one where after having the uh coffer corpse jump at them they're probably going to be a little leery of approaching the skeletons at first so you planted that seed of uncertainty in the players and that's a good thing so, and then we go on, we have the Hall of Labor Eternal, and just more uh, murals of uh, showing laborers at work. And then, if they really look, they start seeing that the workers were zombies. So, because at one point in time, the high priest turned many of the slaves that had died into undead thralls. I love that detail. Right. Yeah, it just reinforces the fact that this adventure, I mean, regardless of some of the criticism we've had of it, this is just well executed. Right. You, you cannot <laughs> knock the backstory of this module. I mean, it, there's just so much detail and so much you could spin off into other adventures. You could throw in some undead thralls in certain areas if you wanted to add a little bit more to it. So you'd be like, oh, those were the slaves that you that were turned died and were brought back so it's just nice little touches and then we now we then there's the library at which point the players are of course are going to rummage through all the books then but most of them they're going to be useless because you see they got infested by bookworms i've never ever seen anyone use bookworms before 
I like it. Oh, I do too. Especially if, say, the magic user decides to take a book, a book <laughs> with him. Or just anyone who, or like a cleric that has a religious tome with him. Or I, I would even say if you have some maps rolled up in your back. Mm-hmm. The bookworm's going to eat it. Yep, so it's going, yeah, so just a nice little touch. And the players aren't going to expect bookworms. Yeah. Now we get to the, the center of the adventure, the clone. Yes. Again, I like this. They've got it set up. If you get there before he's ready to... Uh, when he's fully finished or if he's only half finished. Oh, just a little background. I don't think we've touched on the fact that uh, the uh, uh, the cleric is in more drama. Right. Um. If he was killed previously, what we're dealing with here is a clone. So it's it's in the process of growing. So even if the the big bad guy has already been killed, well, you're gonna have to kill him again. Right. And if he escaped, it says just scrap the clone stuff, and you're fighting the real one. Because it also mentioned they have 48 hours from the time they first get to the monastery before this clone is actually birthed. So if they take too long exploring this place, instead of having the clone still in the process of of being of growing and having penalties to its hits and saving throws and and half hit points and half spells, spells, you'll actually be fighting the full powered more drama mode clone. So that that's another that's something that'll be unknown to the players. But just adds to that ticking clock of you don't want to dilly-dally. So if the players decide to go poking around a little too long in the mines, yeah, looks like the clone's going to be at full strength when they get here. Yeah, and then he's got some quite a bit of nasty stuff with him. He's got the plus two footman's mace, bracers of AC7, a Tron flask is his possession because it's the flask holds a pit fiend. So, oh, yes. And he intends to release the creature in exchange for it granting his wish. So basically, he's going to barter with a pit fiend and say, hey, I'll let you out if you bring back all the slave lords and put us back in power. I'm looking to see if there's any stats on the pit fiend and I'm not seeing it. I'm not seeing it either, so I don't expect that they intended for him to release the pit fiend. However, if he, right. go ahead. However, if the players were taking too long to get there, I could see them walking in on the middle of the barter. He just re- released the pit fiend and he's in there con- trying to barter the, uh, Hey, I let you out now. Grant the wish of the slave Lords. And you got to consider if you got a ninth level party coming in here, He's pretty much on his own, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, you got one bad guy versus the party. The bad guy's probably going to lose. Right. I would want, for a sixth-level party, I'd probably run it more or less as it's written here, but if you've got a ninth-level party, he needs some backup, and I'm going to say a pit fiend makes one heck of a backup. Oh, yeah. And if it starts gating stuff in? Yes. At that point, it becomes... What do we deal with first, the Pit Fiend or Mordramu, who at which point will probably flee? Mm-hmm. So at that point, the bad guy still escapes. 
and then you could build another story off of that. <laughs> and let's say you've got Jeffrey and Mordramo both out there in the wild. Um, they could be antagonistic towards each other. Uh, Mordramo thinks that Jeffrey didn't do what he was supposed to do. Uh, Jeffrey could think any of a number of things. So you actually could have a three-way fight without the party knowing that it's three. They think it's just two. Right. So they could actually have two groups going after them, and they don't realize it's two different groups. Right. I mean, yeah, there's just lots of different ways you can spin off this story. It, it And then just looking at uh, Mordramo's uh, spells, I mean, he's got some nice little stuff in there. I mean, mm-hmm. he's got his whole person, animate dead. I mean, I could even see, like, maybe there could even be some other bodies, maybe some failed uh, clone attempts. Of some of the other slavers, too. Mm-hmm. Why Why would he be the only one with a clone? Maybe they were trying to clone the others, too. You don't know. Very true. Um, now, the, now, it makes sense that he doesn't have a whole bunch of magic items, but it looks like he, uh, yeah. he's, he's got one, one weapon, the bracers, yeah. and the iron flask. It's one of those things where I'd almost want him to have something else. That would be a surprise. Right. But I, I guess the thought was, since he's the clone, he's not going to necessarily have, like, the best stuff that Mordramo had, especially if he died. Now, if he escaped, well, if he escaped into Slave Lords, I could totally see giving him a lot more stuff. Mm-hmm. Although he's got the Iron Flask, so it looks like Mordramo was prepared for the worst to happen. Right. Uh, again, you can go either way on it. Yeah. Yeah. But again, a competent DM is going to look at this and say, well, based upon my party, I'll do X, Y, and Z. Right. Do, do you up the cleric or do you just pop a pit fiend? <laughs> yep. Pop a, pit. pop a pit. I like that term. I want to keep that. Yes, we're popping pit fiends. <laughs> uh, and then lastly, there's also the Garden of the Dead. After the high priest died in the slave uprising, the surviving clerics drove his zombie thralls into the gardens and left them there. Okay, now that that would work for, uh, you know, I mentioned, you know, having some heat shields. Instead of having the zombies out in the garden, Madramo could have the zombies or some of them right there. And again, for a, a sixth or a ninth level party, the zombies aren't a major foe. But again, all they have to do is slow the party down while he's doing his thing. Right. And it changes the, count, the encounter tremendously. Yeah. Or perhaps if he flees, he flees towards the garden. So that, knowing there's this massive uh, wall of zombies there. Just enough to slow the players down. And then, yeah, so there's a lot. Or maybe the players stumble upon the zombies first. And they don't quite know why there are 24 zombies there. Again, they should slay them fairly easily, but still... Hordes of zombies are always fun, and they can be, especially if you can surround a player with them. And, and then we move on. We got the Vault of the Dead, and this it basically it's jars hold the ashes of the dead, and you can just find names written on the various jars of the person with a, also a little crude likeness drawn on as well. So it's just a little more flavor that showed there is a lot of death. Mm-hmm. That happened in this monastery. So, and mm-hmm. yeah, so you can just 
And then also there's the inner vault. So because not everyone was cremated. And now, I like the idea that you got the heavy sarcophagi and party's going to waste a lot of time here digging through trying to find something. Right. Yeah. And there's really, unless they have not dealt with either ghost, the ghost or the specter, they're not going to find anything. But if they haven't dealt with them, uh, they pop out of this sarcophagi. Yep. Then you get to the crematorium. I love it. It makes perfect sense. You got a crematorium. What are you going to use? Fire elemental. Yep. Of course, it has to be insane. Of course. <laughs> it has to be insane in this type of place because they're yep. probably burning people alive. That and the fact that it's been away from its home and it can't get back. Yeah. Oh, I love that line in there. It will try to burn the monastery down. Right. I got this great vision of the party running crazy through a burning monastery. Yes, and the wood's already rotting and decrepit, so you have the floors collapsing because other parts are on fire, walls falling down. Uh, Especially if they, depending on the order in which they find things, maybe they find it after they're chasing down Mordamu and then they stumble upon the crematorium and now the monastery's on fire. So they're trying to find the uh, slaver while trying to not die from a giant flaming building. <laughs> I, yeah. I had something kind of like that happen in a game, uh, my home game. I was playing uh, castle Amber and they completed it. And instead of having the tomb of uh, Stephen B in a different do- uh, dimension. I le- I just put it underneath uh, Castle Amber, so that way, when Castle Amber started rotting and collapsing to the ground, once the curse was lifted, they had to flee through it. So you can have all kinds of fun with that, mm-hmm. just dodging things. Uh oh, yeah. The uh, floor in front of you is on fire. What do you do? Do you try to find another way and waste more time, or do you tr- run through the fire? So, again, just another little thing you could toss in. 48 has got to be the most interesting thing I've seen here. You've got a high priest who is a secret acolyte of Asmodeus or Asmodeus, or I've heard like every pronunciation for that, but either way. um, So you've got a a cursed book and a chalice. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I'm going to have fun with that. Totally. I mean, especially considering the player's... If you don't have a cleric with you, maybe they don't fully recognize it's Amadeus, uh, Osmodeus. So they'll be like, oh, they'll think it's, oh, it's related to the cult of the earth dragon, or it's related to the brotherhood or something. Hmm. No, it's something far more insidious. Yep. I ran the Forgotten Temple of Therisden a few years back, and one of the characters touched a few of the tainted items so what i did for a while was every night when the character dreamed he would have interesting dreams that encouraged him to slaughter the rest of the party yeah and without you know there's no game mechanic there you just start whichever pc touched the book they start having that dreams like that or sacrificing their party members or something like that you don't need to do anything you just you know make the the player wonder okay what's going to happen Right. Why am I all of a sudden I'm having these dreams? Mm-hmm. And then 
you know, maybe uh, come up with a mechanic. So if they don't do something to try to stop the dreams, like appealing to their DD or something like that, uh, maybe they get a little closer to actually doing it. Right. Yeah. That's where like the Ravenloft uh, checks could be useful. Steal some of those mechanics. Mm hmm. Because you just get tempted to go to the dark side. <laughs> yeah. And then, then, so once you're in this hidden, hidden shrine of, Osmodeus, the you had we go to the dreadful gazebo. Ah, down to the Grimlock tunnels. tunnels. Yes. And again, th- this is a great uh, now one of the things you'll notice with a lot of the adventures we publish in Ad Magazine is there will be a section at the end called loose ends or something like that. Yeah. And we try to toss out ideas on okay, where are you gonna go from here? What's left open? Right. And th- this is an absolutely wonderful Loose end. Oh, yeah, because there's nothing here other than there's a 10-foot-wide pit that goes into the darkness. And you can either... I mean, you can make a whole adventure out of just traveling through those Grimlock tunnels mm-hmm. and then or and tie that into... And you could have this tie into the mines. And, yeah, there's just lots you can build off of it. There's mm-hmm. a lot of good hooks in this adventure. Uh, plot hooks. That's what a lot of people call it. Yes. Lots of good plot hooks. Andrew on our team, he always calls them loose ends. Loose ends, yeah. Which there's quite a bit, especially depending on if you ha- who escapes the players in this adventure. So you could have all kinds of loose ends. <laughs> Far more than you wouldn't know what to do with if you're not careful. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah and, and then, what's our, next, a uh, conclusion? Yeah. I was extremely disappointed. There's three paragraphs of conclusion here. And they basically tell you, okay, the adventure ends when the characters defeat Mordramo. And I, I guess I'm an old school gamer because my first thought was, huh? Yeah. No, it ends when we decide it ends. Right. So, um, but again, I think they're writing it more from a later edition point of view where it's, it seems like the adventures are more like a, a block set as opposed to open-ended. Right. And while I look at this and I go, huh? I don't feel bad about it. No, no. I just, you know, had to point it out. Right. It, it, it does throw out a few ideas. If Mordramo uh, escapes that he, it says that he's heading to quarters in cauldron. It's a small city built inside the caldera of a dormant volcano. Um, so you could build off that way. If not, and so if they follow him, they can do a battle with him there. Otherwise, maybe you could respawn the slave Lords after a few years of him being left alone, so. A lot of good ideas here for where to go with it. Right. Now, this is going to sound funny coming from an AD&D player, but I like the 4th edition conversion guide. Yeah. It, I think it's just a generally good idea. Um, I, I have absolutely no hate for any of the other versions of D&D. I don't play them, but, you know, I don't care. If someone was DMing 4th edition, I'd probably try it just as a heck of it. Right. But uh, I, I like the idea of just including everything in here and giving – this gives 4th edition players an interest. They're going to read this module, and they'll they'll look at it from a hopefully different point of view. And, you know, again, it may pull people back to AD&D. And even if it doesn't, they can get some use out of this. Right, because some of the – it has stat blocks for 4th edition – 
of all the monsters, including yep. some of those fiend folio monsters that haven't appeared before. Yep. I mean, I'm looking at the list here. I'm lo- I've got the, you know, we're looking at the PDF. Yeah. And I, I've, I've got a large uh, 23 screen, 23 inch monitor. And the menu of bookmarks for all the monsters fills almost the entire screen. They got a boatload of stuff here. They did, I mean, a pretty extensive job. Right. So from that point of view, I mean, I would have liked them to have provided more stats for the uncommon monsters for AD&D. But, you know, again, um, their focus is going to be more on first or on fourth edition. Right. Because that's, that's their biggest selling point. You know, one thing, the one reason I think any of us AD and Ders or second edition or even OD and D who could all make use of this. The one reason to buy this module is to send a message that there's a market for this. Right. And I don't run a lot of modules. I find it actually takes me more time and effort to fix a module to run in my campaign than it does to just write it from scratch. Mm-hmm. That said, I've got a shelf of old modules I bought back in the eighties and I've got uh, literally gigabytes of modules that I've downloaded off the the net. Tons of them from Dragon's Foot, a lot of other places. Right. And I look at them; at their uh, they're thought inspiring. Right. Uh, they're idea factories. And I can see this one. I'm already looking at this map, and I want to use this map. Right. The, the, the and, ma- yeah, the map is great. I mean, the map is great, and I think that is what players need to, and DMs need to realize. What modules I think were more in. They they are there to spark ideas. They're there to spark things in your campaign. I blatantly will take something from one module, then okay, and if I put this from another module and blend it all together into and make it my own. And with any module you run, make it your own. Don't feel like you have to do everything as it is written. Put put your personal touch to it, and that's what makes it really special. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm looking at this map, and I'm looking at the write-up. And again, you know, I've had a lot of criticism of it, but I'm I'm nitpicking it. And again, well, that's what we're here for, is to nitpick it. But I'm just seeing so much good stuff here, so, so much good thought, good ideas. Um, I give this module a thumbs up. Yeah, I do too. It's it's definitely worth looking into. It's it's an, It builds on the Slave Lords, but... You could run it without running the Slave Lord series. You don't mm-hmm. have to go through A1 to A4 to be able to use this. I mean, with a little bit of flavor change, you could easily just remove the Slave Lords entirely and just have it be some other menace you, that fits better into your world. Yeah, so don't hesitate to like change it up a little bit and make it your own. Because, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff in here. Pick your, uh, your favorite Big Bad Evil guy. That's more drama. The party kills him off, and then they discover in some way, shape, or form that he may not be quite as dead as they thought they, he was. Exactly. And you could just come right in here, and you run the same thing. Right. Just change the name to protect the guilty. Yeah. Totally, totally worth looking at. And again, I'm just thrilled they're actually still making new first edition modules. It shows that with, that the reprints, I guess, are going well enough that it's worth their time to actually make new content. Mm-hmm. Um, this is this is available only through uh, their Dungeons and Dragons uh, Insider monthly subscription, unfortunately. So it's not like you can just go out and buy this module by itself. But 
the way that works is you could just dip in for a month and just pull, download all the old uh, Dungeons and Dragon articles and just mine them. And you don't necessarily have to keep it month to month if you're mm-hmm. if it doesn't interest you. But yeah, it's definitely worth looking at. And I'm also now curious to see what else they come out with. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully they'll realize that there is a sizable. Well, the fact that they came out with this. Well, go back to the uh, the reprints of uh, the core books last year. I think the response to that demonstrated that there is a market, and it looked to me like uh, Wizards was testing the waters to see, okay, how important is this? And now they're reprinting a lot of other stuff, and they're finding that there's one heck of a market here that they failed to tap. Right. It's like uh, putting up all the old PDF products on Drive Through RPG. Now, the one thing I liked is I purchased some years ago. Uh, uh, I did not have a copy of the Fiend Folio. That had belonged to my brother, and he's, you know, I didn't have it. So I've been living for years without it. And I, I picked up Manual of the Plains, Wilderness Survival Guide, and Dungeoneer Survival Guide. And the scans were decent. But I uh, got an email oh, six months ago, maybe, or a little bit less, that said, hey, you purchased such and such. And I, I think it was the Manual of the Plains. And they said, uh, we, we have a fresh scan. Since you purchased previously, it's yours. So I, I logged in, and sure enough, I was able to download it. Yeah. So they're, uh, they're recognizing that there's a market here, and the new scan was a lot better. It was properly indexed. Um, it wasn't just a garbage scan. Right, yeah. They, they've actually done a really good job on creating the PDFs for the, the new, uh, this time around on Drive-Thru RPG. Because, yeah, they were a little like, it's like these, Previously, it's like they stuck some intern on it, just said, here, go scan some pages and throw them up. These, they actually put some effort into to making sure they were high quality, making sure they were bookmarked and searchable and, yeah, really good stuff. There's definitely some good stuff out there. Yeah, I, uh, I like this. I need to uh, spend some time and write up my version of this. I'm probably going to keep a lot of the details. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, you know, I run a high... Uh, my party's a little bit higher level, and I run a high magic campaign, so I need to jack some of the encounters up. But again, keeping some of the encounters relatively low in terms of power, just to you know, psych the party out. Or psych them up, and then they discover something's a little tougher than they thought. Right, yeah. Just... But yeah, this has really done a lot for... This has inspired me. Right, yeah. I mean, yeah, just really good stuff. I mean, I'll, and it it's new product but still has that old school feel and i think it does it it makes a good continuation of the uh slave lord series mm-hmm. so definitely a good job yeah so with that i think so anyone out there who uh may have actually also have read this module uh write us in at uh rfi staff at gmail.com or call our hotline at area code 570-865-4210. Our cohorts are standing by waiting for your calls. Let us know what you think of this module. Have you? Has anyone out there actually ran this? We'd like to hear what you have done or uh, maybe any changes you have made to this. So, anyways, with that, I think that will call this a show. It's been a pleasure having you on, Brian. Thank you much. I was glad to be here. This has been a wonderful uh Wonderful discussion. I've really enjoyed this. Yes, as did I. And I'd like to send a shout-out to DM Kojo. Unfortunately, uh, midway through, he had to drop off to attend to uh, some family stuff. So, But all is well with him. So we thank for having him on and look forward to getting his uh, 
voicemails in the future. And I saw a notice online a few minutes ago that Vince was online, so it looks like he has recovered from his car troubles and made it home. Yes, he finally made the uh, trek back home, so hopefully all is well in the automobile front with him. Oh, um, Earlier in the show, I'd mentioned that we were looking for some people. Yes. And the one thing I forgot to do was give everybody our website. Yes, definitely it's do that. And Mag, A-N-D-M-A-G.com. And uh, if anyone with submissions can send it to submissions at and-mag.com. And uh, Nikki asked me, she said, as long as we're asking for things, she would like a pony. A pony. Okay. We will- Nikki is our publisher. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we will put that request out there, and I'll also have the links and uh, email address in the show notes as well for over at uh, rfipodcast.com. So if you have any uh, ideas or uh, stuff you want to submit to uh, Ann Mag, go right ahead and send it to him. Submissions at Ann Mag. And then, uh, so with that, uh, I, we will wrap things up and. Everyone, keep it original, keep it old school, and good night, everyone. Have a good one. Roll for initiative.